0: the text the lectionary text as I read it I apologize I have decided to change the text from the Lucan account that you received in your bulletin to the Matthew account of Palm Sunday as it is given to us in the 21st chapter verses 1 and 10. I'll give you a moment to find that if you'd like to read along Matthew 21 1 through 10. When Jesus and all the disciples, they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them. And he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Zechariah, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, "'Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven!' When he entered Jerusalem the whole city was in turmoil asking who is this This is the word of the Lord We have to love Palm Sunday at Riverside with the children bringing their palm branches I'm always reminding of, reminded of that cult Christmas classic the Christmas story where The star wants a Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas, and his mother keeps saying, no, you'll put somebody's eye out. That's what I think about with the palm branches being (laughs) waved back and forth. Luckily, again this year, no one was injured. I'm grateful for all those who make that happen and for the families who uh, let their children be here. It's a big day at Riverside. We have... A luncheon and an Easter egg hunt. Today serves as one of the bookends of the great joyous season of Easter coming up next week with Easter itself. But before we get there with all the joy and all the pomp and all the celebration, I'd like to just throw out a little downer now, I know that's probably no surprise to you that I tend to throw out a downer or two, but I just wanted to start off with just one small little downer, and that's about this book that somebody gave me that was written 10 years ago called Global Disasters, Catastrophes, and Trends. His name was Vaclav Smil, and it's, as you would expect, not the most optimistic read. He breaks down statistically the possible catastrophes that we might face in the next 50 years, like influenza pandemics, world wars, large-scale terrorist attacks, earthquake tsunamis, and my particularly, or particular favorite one is massive asteroid strikes. Then he deals with the troubling trends that might affect global change, like climate change and the transition from fossil fuels, the continued decline of Europe and the rise of the Pacific Asian nations, the increased economic disparity between rich and poor, and the possible rise of fascism in countries where fear of terrorism and other fear continues to grow, and also, finally, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Smill is like one of those doctors of darkness that you go to see, and he goes down the whole laundry list of everything that can go wrong, even before he runs the tests. So that when you finally get your test back, which is usually okay, whatever the diagnosis is, is a lot better than what you expected from the first meeting. Reminds me, with books like this, why in our age the level of anxiety seems to be going off the roof. Still, at least for me, it was worth the read, not for the prophecy or the projection so much as because in this book he continually reminds the reader that no matter how much we know or how good we are with statistics, it is most often the unexpected and insignificant Event that triggers global change. Something unaccounted for flies below the radar and goes undetected at first. Like, well, the tried example would be like the pharmacist who was putting his concoction together with cocaine included, uh, which would end up being the most sold carbonated soft drink in the history of the world, Coca-Cola. That may be insignificant to you, but it's not insignificant if you're from Atlanta. <laughs> or the story of Abraham Lincoln, who decided to go to the play. Or the well-known story of Dr. Fleming, who in 1928 went on vacation after studying his, uh, his Staphylococcus bacteria in his Petri dishes to come back months later and find that mold had grown in, grown in them of course the invention beginning of penicillin. His point is that even with all the statistical projections history and life are way too complex to predict the future especially considering the billions of seemingly insignificant choices and events that bring about change. This morning I want to point out one such choice and make the case that Jesus' decision to go to Jerusalem was on the world's stage at least just such an insignificant moment. We now know, after the event, that it was in fact the most significant decision in the history of the world. With all the pomp of Palm Sunday and Easter, it's hard for us to imagine how small that parade really was. In the context of military parades, it was not even worth going to. We know this because if it had been anything significant at all, the Roman Military would have squashed it like a bug because they avoided, as you would expect, in a militarily ruled country, they avoided anything that might look the least like an insurrection. They didn't avoid it. They just did away with it. This little parade flew under their radar. Yet, if no one else did, Jesus understood the cosmic and historical significance of entering the holy city. In chapter 9 of Matthew, and in almost every other gospel, Jesus sets his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, knowing in the end that it would probably cost him his life. He had, by the time he entered Jerusalem, come to understand that he had been born and adopted by God to reveal the true presence, the essence, the persona of who God is that he was the Word of God made flesh as he understood it, and that his job, his point, his mission in life was to reveal to the world who and what God is and what God is like. He came to know that God's mandate to restore the relationship between God and humanity was somehow based on his own life, and that he had accepted this calling as God's Son and Messiah. And in this acceptance, he knew somehow that God would use it to redeem all the world. He knew that for change to happen, it might even mean his death. The medium is the message, they say. How you are or do something is, in fact, the real truth of what you were trying to say. Process is important as product. It was expected that the Messiah, the medium, would come through as Bill said, a giant fanfare of parade with horns blowing and soldiers lined up and chariots rolling. I mean that's how David would have come. King David and the Messiah of course would come the same way through the east gate with this giant Sort of historical moment. Everybody would know it. He's finally come back the Messiah. Jesus, however, chooses, in fact, the exact opposite way. The medium is the message. No press there, no cameras, no spin assistance, no grand moment of show and force. Instead, he downplays it. No downplay is too light a word. He actually mocks the grandstanding and grandiosity of such parades, orchestrating his own entrance by setting up with someone who had a colt and a donkey to borrow it. And instead of flag wavers and soldiers on the road, he asked children. Literally, they were the least of these. He asked and invited children to rally for him. Everything he did was a reflection of who he was and how he did it was the medium. The meaning and the message had to be congruent for him to follow his calling, for him to follow the book of Zechariah's projection that says, look, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, Actually, the Greek was mistranslated from the Hebrew. As it was translated by Matthew, it reads, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But really, the actual translation is mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Matthew, not knowing what to do, since there was both a donkey and a colt, writes into his description that Jesus rode on the backs of both of them, as if some circus rider would be have one foot on one horse and one on the other, which I think is a probably apt description, for in a way this parade was like a circus and Jesus was the clown. That was his point. The paradox of this cannot be lost on us as the church. God Almighty, El Shaddai, the Lord... The all-powerful comes in completely humble, riding on a donkey. The medium is the message. This is the God of power who manifests himself in this son of complete servanthood and humility. Not like George Patton riding into Paris, heading the tank squadron, but like a clown riding on a donkey and a colt with children waving branches, in the long scheme of history, it was completely insignificant. The Bible is full of these kinds of paradoxes, in fact. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians that goes... God takes the things that are not and turns them into the things that are. In the Bible, an old geezer named Abraham and his geezer wife Sarah, having no children, all of a sudden find themselves with child, and that child becomes a blessing to 4.5 million Jews, Muslims, and Christians. The eighth child, the eighth child, you don't count past seven, the eighth child of a family of shepherds, the runt of the litter literally ends up becoming King David, the first messianic leader of Israel. The child of a couple not yet married, did you get that? The child of a couple not yet married, living on the streets with no place to stay, ends up being born in a stable who is the Son of God. God takes the things that are not and turns them into the things that are. And this is especially true in our lives and in our day. A six-year-old child, surrounded by what would classically be called dysfunctional parents, is invited by her first-grade teacher to church, and it changes her life. A child lifts up an act of kindness, not even knowing that they are, to a woman who works at Lowe's behind the cash register, and that woman who has an otherwise barren job in front of her all of a sudden blossoms forth. A simple thank you, a word of encouragement, pat on the back when rooted in sincerity, breaks forth into song in the life of someone who is in desperate need of kindness. These small, seemingly insignificant events, God takes and grows into enormous importance. The fourth grade teacher who has obvious ADD and is the class clown is invited by that teacher to become responsible for all of the audiovisual needs in the class. They learn how to run the slide projector, and they... Learn how to use the 16 millimeter uh, camera. It's a big responsibility, and that ADHD boy all of a sudden finds himself with a new sense of responsibility. God takes the things that are not waltz, and death, and divorce, disease. God takes those valley in the shadow of death experiences and walks with us through them, but not only that, keeps our eyes focused on the light that is rising up over the hilltop and not only focused there, but gives us the strength to make it up that hill when we make it through that valley. In God's kingdom, I think, The paradox is, the bigger the splash, the less there, there, as someone once said of Oakland, California, which fortunately no longer works. The bigger the production, the less meat, the more hollow it is. If we could only get that right, if we could only have the sense of that, if we could just learn to see life as Jesus did that is the small and seemingly insignificant not that which is grand the not the grandiosity not the grand standing but the small and insignificant as the real place that god becomes open to us true to us revealed to us it's the super bowl syndrome every year it's it's an it's an An increasing level of hype, the cultural and economic and political powers that keep ratcheting up this hype just ends up hollow. Last Sunday, for instance, for those basketball fans, we could not wait for the brackets to see who would be chosen and where your team's seed would be. CBS does it every year. It's usually a 30-minute program. Last week, it was two hours long. It was... 30 minutes of meat and an hour and a half of hype. The point is for us as Christians and for the church that we cannot oversell ourselves or mass produce ourselves or market ourselves or hype ourselves as much as humble ourselves taking the form of a servant as did Jesus. What this means for the church, I think at least, is that when we claim too much for ourselves in terms of power and righteousness and knowledge and not enough living out the medium of humility, we choose to give witness not to the God of Jesus Christ, but to the gods of the cultural idolatries that we tend to follow the only real branding in the church that matters is the kind that displays the suffering servanthood of Jesus Christ, who was by any account a loser. Ted Turner once said, when asked if he was a Christian, Ted Turner, as in Turner broadcasts, who grew up in an evangelical church, once asked when he was, if he was a Christian, responded, Why would I want to follow that loser? I guess Ted never looked in the mirror to see that there was an L in the middle of his forehead. As there is an L for each of us when compared to the standard of the unconditional love of God. In the end, as some people grade it, we are all losers, which means that in the end... God takes the things that are not and turns them into the things that are. We are all winners through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now the hope. Hopefully you've heard the hope. At the end of this book, Catastrophes and Trends, After projecting all the possible dark things that can go wrong with the world, Smill tells a parable. Is how he ends the book. He shares how his favorite place in Rome is the Aventine Hill on the Tiber's left bank. At its top stands the Basilica of Santa Sabina. He says, Its unadorned brick exterior looks mundane, but once you approach its magnificent carved doors, the perception changes and then you enter one of the most perfect spaces ever put under a roof, a wide nave, columns, the walls bare, but the church is filled with light, bright but not dazzling, penetrating by, penetrating but not ethereal. He says construction of the basilica uh, built by the request of Petrus of Illyria began in 422. 12 years after the Goths had sacked Rome, destroying much of its imperial splendor. This magnificent structure built right on the heels of seemingly the end of civilization remind us gracefully and forcefully of the continuity of history. The fact that such terms as demise or collapse or end are often Merely categories of our making and that catastrophes and endings are also opportunities and beginnings, end quote. Such is the power and the glory of God. As Jesus enters Jerusalem and the inevitable crucifixion that would follow, Jesus gives witness that the greatest catastrophe in the history of the world was his death on a cross as the Son of God. And that catastrophe becomes, by God's grace, the ultimate redemption of all history. No small, insignificant parade after all. Way back in the recesses of your brain, you may remember it. It's called the Gloria Patri. Let us stand and sing it together.